Hello? Anybody here? What is the location? Welcome aboard the Southwest train service to London Waterloo. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. It shouldn't really be allowed. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. Not again! Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's uh, been about a month since my latest episode. That's bad. That That's bad. That That's bad. That's the only fault I would have, that it isn't often enough. Uh, Heidi-ho there, all you fairy tale lovers. Oh, you back again? Uh, yep. This here is episode 21. In our last episode, we went on a hugely successful Easter egg hunt, and we discovered a literary gem that everybody else seems to have overlooked for at least a hundred years. It's something that's been sitting right there, hiding in plain sight, ever since the Grimms stuck it in their 1843 version of Hansel and Gretel. And what I mean is their cheeky little metalepsis concerning coffin carpentry. In other words, their tongue-in-cheek allusion to a very specific example of the so-called Narrenliteratur and Reformationsdialoge of the 16th century. What's that you say? Well, that just means fool's literature. Very comical satires making fun of certain people, ideas, and behaviors, along with Reformation dialogues, vaguely comical, more overtly religious arguments in favor of Luther's reforms. Now, together, they were two very popular forms of literature that, to this day, still have the power to make people laugh. <laughs> right. Hell, they sure made me laugh. And if you go back and listen to episode 20, you can hear all about what we found and exactly how we found it. For my money, this has serious implications for Grimm's scholarship going forward. Actually, what we're doing here with the story of Hansel and Gretel? Well, that's the very sort of research advocated by Heinz Holicke, the foremost Grimm scholar in Germany, in a paper he presented in Göttingen, in 1985. Who cares? Well, it's my contention that everything we're doing here with Hansel and Gretel was already done by a certain band of literary conoscenti back in the 19th century. Ah. 
Hey, don't get me wrong, though. It's not as if they left behind a written record of all this stuff that I somehow stumbled across. No, 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 no. I'm certain that what we're doing here, it's the same kind of work that's been done before. In fact, for centuries, there had been a keen interest in doing exactly what we're doing with Hansel and Gretel. But that interest, well, it seems to have been lost to the same uh, restructuring of Western culture, that kind of restructuring that produced the First World War. Are you kidding me? Hey, I kid you not. Anyway, I'm sharing all this with you here and now, first and foremost, because of my interest in this kind of work. I also believe that for the sake of the culture, this stuff is worth knowing about, worth caring about, and well worth doing. Whatever. Now, well, today, we're moving along to the next line of the fairy tale. So let's take a listen as Jürgen Lexow, our German storyteller extraordinaire, goes back over the story so far, and then carries us along into the subject Of today's episode. Es war einmal ein armer Holzhacker, der wohnte vor einem großen Wald. Es ging ihm gar jämmerlich, dass er kaum seine Frau und seine zwei Kinder ernähren konnte. Einsmals hatte er auch kein Brot mehr und war in großer Angst. Da sprach seine Frau abends im Bett zu ihm, »Nimm die beiden Kinder morgen früh und führ sie in den großen Wald.« Gib ihnen das noch übrige Brot und mach ihnen ein Großfeuer an. Und danach geh weg und lass sie allein. Der Mann wollte lange nicht, aber die Frau ließ ihm keine Ruhe, bis er endlich einwilligte. Aber die Kinder hatten alles gehört, was die Mutter gesagt hatte. Once upon a time, there was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough he could scarcely feed his wife and two children. Once, there wasn't even any more bread, and he was terrified. Aww. So, one night in bed, his wife said to him, Early tomorrow, take both children into the woods. Give them what's left of the bread, make them a big fire, and then go off and leave them alone. For a long time, the man refused. But the woman gave him no peace until he finally said, Well, all right. Anything you want. Anything. But the children heard everything the mother said. Teil 1 In which we hear about the yin and yang of Hansel and Gretel and spend a few sleepless nights trying to figure out what grace has to do with insomnia. Does your typical night suffer from horribly boring night syndrome? We got a solution for you. This Tuesday, October 20th, 17th, the Undertaker... Well, there it is. Instead of being all tucked in their beds and sound asleep, 
the children heard everything the mother said. That's a pretty simple revelation, right? And while it means the plot is about to thicken, we could easily say that little pitchers have big ears. And just kind of leave it at that. Oh, I think that we should do that. Yeah, well, except the old saying, just like the phrase in this sentence, it doesn't just mean that children hear what adults say. It implies the well-known fact that children, they often understand exactly what adults mean, even when those adults use code words to try and hide that meaning from them. And, uh, good luck with that. Uh, for goodness sakes, that's how I learned a few Italian phrases as a kid. Whenever my grandmother said something to my mother that she didn't want us kids to understand, she said it in Italian. So, given the context and the inflection, I always knew what she meant. Spaghetti. Still, these are not literal children we're talking about. Hell, they're not even literal people. Calling them fictional, that already means that they're metaphoric, and not simply imaginary or insubstantial. But uh, let's not belabor the point. These children hear and understand everything, and that has to be the case if we consider them as metaphors representing two separate functions of consciousness within the same four-square consciousness represented by our fairy tale family. The psychological truth being that one aspect of our consciousness can't act without other aspects being in the loop, even if they're not the ones in charge of the personality and right up front in our conscious mind. As Jung might say, the left hand does know exactly what the right hand is up to, especially when those aspects of personality we normally expect to be fast asleep, well, they're wide awake and active within the unconscious. And remember, we're still committed to figuring out which of the four functions of consciousness each member of the Holzhacker family represents. No, sir. Well, yeah, we are. In this sentence, this gives us our very first clue regarding the metaphoric identity of the children. Now, sure, we've heard about the kids before and understood them to be scapegoats. But this is the first time we learn something specific about them through their own actions. Of course, we don't hear about them individually, not just yet. And so this step reinforces the fact that in terms of typology, the functions actually work in pairs. Two of the functions work together as a dominant pair or coupling within the psyche, while the other two functions, they constitute a so-called inferior coupling. No fair! No fair! Hey, relax. Neither coupling or pair is intrinsically superior in terms of quality. It's just that one pair is normally at work in consciousness, while the other pair, eh, that's busy doing God knows what in the unconscious. I would like a dozen more chimpanzees to be delivered by tomorrow. Thank you. 
Now, in addition to this sort of coupling, the four functions also group up as two pairs of opposites that are like the two opposite sides of the same coin. Now, considering everything we've learned about Dionysius and his connection to Hansel in episode 19, we might be tempted to call these Holzhacker opposites a Dionysian-Apollonian duality. But that's premature, and even way too specific. At this point, it's much better to simply use the more abstract Taoist terminology of yin and yang. Why, 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 why? Well, the terms yin and yang are thoroughly archetypal, and they indicate the absolutely generic, nonspecific concept of opposites. And while yin and yang have no intrinsic or specific attributes, all sorts of specific attributes can be assigned to them as they're named and discovered. For example, we normally think of yin as darkness and yang as light. And yet, that can be totally reversed. See, light and dark will always remain opposites, but neither is intrinsically yin or yang. In any case, the two children the little brother and the little sister, whom the Grimms baptized as Hansel and Gretel? Well, there's certainly a pairing or a combination of two functions of consciousness. But they're not necessarily a yin-yang combination of opposites. You are hormonally confused. Hey, yeah, sure. In the context of gender, they are. Although, uh, these days, I guess you'd have to ask them for their pronouns. To be sure. Uh, <laughs> but now, uh, speaking in terms of typology, the two yin-yang pairs of opposites are thinking and feeling, the so-called faculties of judgment, while the other pair are sensation and intuition, the so-called faculties of perception. Now, all that we know so far is that Frau Holzacker? Uh, she ain't the feeling function. And while she's paired with her husband, we still don't know which function he, or even what anybody else, represents. Now, as I've said, in order to do that, we've got to observe them in action. And this is the first moment in which we see, or hear about, the kids in action. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've already linked Hansel with Dionysius, and we've linked the still small voice to Dionysius. And uh, guess what? What? The still small voice always knows what conscience and the conscious ego is up to. And since the children have now heard their parents' scheme, which uh, pretty much amounts to the voice of conscience, does that make the pair of them the still small voice? I don't know. Oh, I don't know either. And these are questions we just can't answer right now. So let's put them on the back burner while we consider another tiny clue the Grimm's added to the story. It may or may not mean anything terribly important, but from their very first 1812 edition on, the Grimm's added the fact 
that the children couldn't sleep because they were hungry. I want my pizza right now. I am very hungry. <clears throat> the two children were still awake from hunger and heard everything the mother said to the father. Now, uh, for what it's worth, the Grimms also emphasized the mother as the villain by making no mention of what the father said, which uh, pretty much seals the deal on the idea that they're listening to the voice of conscience. But uh, let's not quibble. The manuscript, it does the same thing. Well, the real addition the Grimms make is this business of hunger and its function as a logical reason for the kids to be awake. Yeah, so what? Well, it's important to remember that the whole talk of hunger is still metaphor. It's a metaphor we can all relate to, because the very thing that tends to keep every one of us awake at night, well, that's an acute hunger for whatever it is that our Hansel and Gretel bread symbolizes. We'll eat frozen pizzas all day, all day, every day. Hey, we've all had our share of sleepless nights, tossing and turning in angst over all sorts of postmodern worries and concerns. You know, financial problems, family problems, work problems, eh, you name it. You sure do have your problems. Uh, yeah. Well, then throw in all of our sins of omission or commission. Makes no difference. They might all seem like demons and tortures, specially designed to fit our own unique situation, and yet the universal popularity of this fairy tale? It tells us we're all suffering from the exact same archetypal hunger that the Holtzakers are suffering from. What's that? Huh, an apparent lack of divine grace, which uh, in this day and age, it might as well be a fairy tale itself. You realize some people aren't going to be happy with this? Yeah, well, it's imperative that we figure out exactly what grace is before things get too far out of hand. And what I mean is, we need to find the real McCoy grace that uh, ain't no religious abstraction. Damn this good shit! All I can tell you right now is that Hansel and Gretel, the fairy tale... That's made it pretty clear to me exactly what grace is. Why won't you share? Well, I swear to God, the episode with the recipe for real, honest-to-goodness soul food, it's common. In the meantime, just let me remind you that I could use the grace of your support, financial and otherwise. As I said in episode 19, I've signed up with that uh, buy-me-a-coffee outfit. You know, K-O-F-I. Remember? No. Well, there's a link in the show notes and on the webpage for this episode that I would love for you guys to click on. And what do you know? My friend and fellow podcaster, Danny Van Leeuwen of Health Hats, the podcast, well, he was the first listener to click on that link and throw some uh, bread my way. Thanks for that, Danny. And whether or not you guys decide to click on that link and cast your uh, bread 
upon these here waters? I'd still encourage you to check out the website, if only for the sake of supporting your own intuition. So, visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Absolutely not. Uh, Alrighty then. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we find out that the Grimms put out a contract on the first Frau Holzhacker. Forget about it. I'm a simple man and I don't get upset too easy. But when I do, I like to take a person's life. Right now, we've got to address the most curious thing the Grimms decided to do with Hansel and Gretel. So let's listen to the Grimms' revision of the story as they suddenly choose to play the stepmother card. The two children had also not been able to sleep for hunger and had heard what their stepmother had said to their father. What is wrong with this picture? Pretty curious, huh? No, it's not. Yeah, well, it might seem logical. Except it's kind of gratuitous, since it's not a crucial addition to the plot. Now, for the sake of comparison, we know that many Hansel and Gretel versions by various authors well, they land on different sides of the issue. We learned in episode 10 that nearly every single one of those versions were retellings. They came after the Grimm's 1812 first edition. And we also learned that there were only four European versions that came before 1812. Remember? No. Well, let's take another look at the four versions that preceded the Grimm's and see if they played the stepmother card or not. All right, if you insist. The first and oldest story is the one that Martin Montanus published in 1560. A fine history of a woman with two young girls. As I said, that story was so popular, it was known to Goethe 150 years later. The villains in that story... Well, they're a stepmother and the elder of two sisters. Oddly enough, both of the sisters are daughters of the guy the stepmother married. And it's the younger daughter who gets abandoned in the forest. Just like the Holzhockers, this family's poor. But as far as motivation goes, there's no famine mentioned. And while it's obvious that the stepmother has no love for the heroine, What gives with her sibling? Exactly why she hates her little sister and wants her to die? That's a complete mystery. Yeah, I get the sibling rivalry thing. But acting that out in cahoots with an evil stepmother? It's pretty extreme, even for a fairy tale. In fact, you gotta think that an older sister isn't even a logical necessity for the sake of the plot. There's got to be some interesting literary or psychological reason for it, but we're not going to spend any time trying to suss that out. Not here and not now. Thank you. 
The next oldest tale is John Battista Basile's Nenillo e Nenella, first published in his Pentamarone in the 17th century, about 1635. It has a young brother and sister who both get abandoned, and uh, like the Montana's tale, makes no mention of famine. Instead, Basile plays the stepmother card. Ooh, and he throws it down with a vengeance. In a kind of brief introduction to the story, he plays up a crass cliché regarding every woman's distaste for stepchildren as the basis for the entire story. Oh, no. The next oldest story is Perrault's Les Petits Poussets, published in 1697. Perrault not only uses the real mother, his is the first of these stories to cite famine as the precipitating event. Now, he also has the father act as villain, having this guy come up with the idea of child abandonment all on his own, and then forcing his wife to go along with it against her wishes. (laughs) The fourth story is Madame Dolnois' version. Finette Syndrome. It was published in 1698, only one year after Perrault's tale, and it has neither a stepmother nor a famine. Instead, the parents of three young girls are a king and a queen who managed their affairs very badly and were eventually forced to make some sort of honest living. Ugh. Well then. Il était une fois un roi et une reine qui avaient mal fait leurs affaires. Ooh la la. Their decision to uh, downsize the family? It turns out to be a cost-cutting measure they both agreed on. Um, yes, you're getting two for the price of one. Getting back to Hansel and Gretel, changing this parental detail from mother to stepmother... That's no minor tweak. And it's significant for a number of reasons, not least of which because it implies a previous Frau Holzacker, whose unspoken presence really complicates the metaphor. Oh, no. Now, earlier, I thought it might be pointing us towards a religious subtext, which, uh, if followed, ends up being far more twisted than a Mobius strip and way too complicated to even qualify as coherent metaphor. Oh, crap. Yeah, it really had me twisted in knots trying to follow that busy thread. Although it did lead me back to Greek mythology and the story of Phrixus and his twin sister, Hela. I'll leave a link. Fortunately for all of us, I happen to have finally discovered the real reason the Grimms made this change. And I'm dying to spill the beans on it. But I think it's better if I continue to provide more context and save that information for the bonus episode I proposed in episode 20. That is so typical. In general, the characterization of a nasty stepmother is another cultural cliché. Namely, that no woman can naturally love the children of her husband's former wife. And as Basile put it, 
If by chance such a woman were ever found, she would be regarded as a miracle. Woe to him who thinks to find a governess for his children by giving them a stepmother. He only brings into his house the cause of their ruin. There never yet was a stepmother who looked kindly on the children of another. Or if by chance such a one were ever found, she would be regarded as a miracle and be called a white crow. Not only do the children represent a subliminal intrusion of the ex-wife, Just like a young child after the birth of a first sibling, a stepmother can simply be jealous of the children themselves. Certainly. The unspoken presumption in fairy tales, if not in real life, is that conjugal love and affection is a zero-sum game. Oh, absolutely. And these witchy stepmothers, they want their husband's attention and affection all to themselves. I own you. Of course, a spouse's divided attention can't be helped when there are children involved. And really, how is it that love could be diminished by being shared with more than one person? Do you know that I hate little kids? Well, I do. I do now. So in the case of an evil stepmother, we have someone suffering the delusion that there isn't enough love to go around and who therefore punishes and scapegoats those she holds responsible for her problem. Not good. In Basile's tale, the cliché of the stepmother is so strong, no famine or natural catastrophes required to provide motivation for abandoning the children. This Grimm's revision, it turns the famine into an excuse for the new Frau Holzacker to act out her presumably repressed feelings. This is lame. Yeah, actually it is. See, whether or not she's starved for affection, she herself has got to be a real narcissist. Someone who experiences life as a famine. So she must have already been itching to remedy that situation by eliminating her competition. Not to mention symbolically feeding off them. Because, uh, once again... There's no getting around the not-so-secret identification of this witchy woman with the witch. Oh dear, that's rather alarming. But this only explains why you need to add a famine to the story if the villain is the natural mother. And then only if the mother is a stone-cold narcissist. These days we know a hell of a lot more about the whole idea of narcissistic parents. And the original Frau Holzacker definitely fits the description. This is the biggest pile of crap I've ever heard. Playing the stepmother card when there's already a famine? It seems like a silly case of overkill. Except, I've discovered why the Grimms chose to do so. And as I said, I'm saving that information for a bonus episode. If you're not going to do it, just say you're not going to do it. For now, let's just say that their addition of the stepmother does more than introduce a natural antipathy towards the children. It introduces the oddly important fact that there was a prior marriage with a prior wife. 
something we'll have cause to discuss much later on in this story. This is the moment! The moment you've been waiting for! Uh, no, it's not. Right now we got bigger fish to fry. Or, uh, should I say, small fry. We're about to uh, catch our very first glimpse of Hansel and Gretel as individuals. Catch me, if you can. (laughs) Oh, brother. Part 3. Teil 3. In which we turn on the waterworks and raise a few feminist hackles. Son of a bitch! Uh Uh-oh. Aber die Kinder hatten alles gehört, was die Mutter gesagt hatte. Das Schwesterchen fing an gar sehr zu weinen. Das Brüderchen sagte ihm, es solle still sein und röstete es. But the children heard everything the mother said. So the sister began to cry terribly, and the brother hushed and comforted her. Obviously, this isn't the first activity of the children, since we were informed in the last step that they heard everything the mother said. And yeah, we're still talking about the natural mother, not only because that's what the manuscript version is telling us, It's also because the stepmother business, it's a complication the Grimm's first added in their fourth edition. And while it has a very special significance, I'll leave that for the bonus episode. Whatever. Anyway, this is where the psychological and metaphoric characteristics of the Holzhacker kids, it starts getting fleshed out. They're no longer generic scapegoats or sacrificial lambs just as they're no longer all ears and nothing else. See, they're starting to show definite personality traits that are unique to each of them. Interesting. Specifically, Gretel starts crying, presumably in fear of her life. And by doing so, she's actually mimicking the terror experienced by her father. Roger, Dad. Hansel who we later learn has a creative, responsible plan in mind, he calms and reassures his sister with his genuine empathy and quiet courage. Oh, yeah. We also know for a fact that it's genuine empathy, and not plain old sympathy, because he shares Gretel's exact same fate. Uh Uh-huh. We're going to learn a lot more about Hansel in the next few lines of this story. Interestingly, though, Gretel's famous exploits come much later on, and only after repeated emphasis on her doing nothing but crying. I know, I know, I know. So, sure, that sounds like perfect grounds for a legitimate feminist beef. It shouldn't happen. Well, for now, let's leave gender out of the equation and concentrate solely on the simple act of crying. What's your deal? Well, being frightened and crying sounds perfectly logical for any small child. But what does it mean in the context of our story? 
Why did our author make Gretel cry? I don't know. Certainly having Gretel cry serves to emphasize Hansel's empathy and maturity, as if she were playing straight man to help set up and demonstrate his subsequent competence. But Gretel's so much more than a bit player or supporting actress. I'm not a little girl. What could she be metaphorically? What does this crying make her? I don't know. If we think of Gretel as enthusiasm, having her cry, it's consistent with the idea that our own enthusiasm, that can be such a delicate flower, and can be so easily damaged by an overbearing parent or authority figure. Not to mention any of those myriad run-of-the-mill trolls that social media has emboldened. I don't want to tell you. Crying would also be an honest and innocent first reaction to learning that the parents have such a dark, evil plan in mind. I know. I know. The sudden change of situation, in which they're forced to leave the nest without adequate preparation, it's as unfair as it is unnatural. Oh my God. So this would also make Gretel innocence, but not necessarily naivete. I'm listening. What's most obvious is that she's frightened to the point of tears, and not only reacts like a helpless child, but is pretty much treated like one by her empathic brother, who seems more like a responsible, caring parent than either of the parents they have. Shit. So is Gretel supposed to be beauty? Is she just another fairy tale cliche of the fair damsel in distress with an eventual feminist twist? Stop, please. Okay. So instead of groping around for human characteristics, stuff that fails to cover Gretel's deceptively complex character, let's apply the Jungian model of consciousness to these two children. Please don't do that. No, seriously, just bear with me. Like it or not, the Jungian model gives us an apt and powerful framework for arriving at the most reasonable hypothesis concerning the psychological and metaphoric identity of these kids. It not only cuts through all sorts of cultural or even Freudian cliches, it offers a moderately scientific point of departure for further consideration. Words, words, words. Hey, instead of a seemingly endless number of possible, maybe even likely, human attributes, we only need to choose from four possibilities. Thinking, feeling, sensation, or intuition. Our four cognitive functions of consciousness. Which one? Well, of these four, what do you think? The most likely candidate for Gretel's identity, at least so far, it seems to be the feeling function. Whoa. Now maybe we're being premature in our assessment, especially since we're basing it solely on her crying. But uh, hey, this is only a hypothesis. We're still free to change our mind and adjust our hypothesis if this experimental metaphor falls apart or if further evidence proves us wrong. Great. Awesome. Everything is good. 
Part 4 Talfir, in which we partner up and make a very bold prediction. Your dreams will surely come true. Uh, not that kind of prediction. Soon, my friend, your soul will be mine! <laughs> Ooh, not that kind either. So, if Gretel is the feeling function of this four-square consciousness, that's going to help us figure out which function Hansel represents. How? Well, hang on for a sec. That's still going to depend on the clues we'll be finding in subsequent lines of the fairy tale. Of course, by itself, Hansel's role as parental surrogate in response to Gretel's crying, it's not specific enough for us to identify him as any of the remaining three functions of consciousness. That said, the Grimms provided us with one extra clue that's worth contemplating. And they did it right from the get-go, by adding it to their very first 1812 edition. It's still not enough to confirm which of the four functions Hansel represents, but it's remarkable enough to be consistent with our final and definitive assessment. Gretel wept bitter tears and said to Hansel, Now is all over with us. Be quiet, Gretel said Hansel. Do not distress yourself. I will soon find a way to help us. Now when the Grimms put these specific words of comfort into Hansel's mouth, presumably for the sake of enlivening the bare-bones style of the manuscript, they gave us a sneak peek at a very specific attribute. In response to Gretel's fear, sensitivity, and apparent weakness, there's empathy, as I said, in Hansel's words. But now, there's also confidence. I mean, in the manuscript version, Hansel doesn't do much more than coo at Gretel and gently shush her. So, later on, the Grimms have him doing the same thing, but they also have him say that he's gonna find a solution. Yeah? Now, once again... Gretel's fear and sensitivity serves to emphasize Hansel's strength and confidence, although whether or not this is pure bravado on his part, eh, remains to be seen. Of course, we all know the outcome, and we realize that Gretel proves to be anything but weak and helpless, but let's concentrate solely on Hansel's confident words. Okie dokie. Even if he's just whistling in the dark, what is it he's so confident about? What's the meaning of his confidence at this point? And where does it come from? I don't think you know. Having confidence in ourselves? Self-confidence? It's a human ideal that makes for success in meeting everything life can throw at us. From the mundane to the cosmic. From Paper jams to pink slips. I hate Mondays. It means being confident in our creative and courageous ability to not only overcome obstacles, but overcome our fears concerning them. In other words, this confidence has just as much to do with creativity 
as bravery or courage. And so courage, confidence, and empathy are all attributes that Hansel is showing us. If we add creativity and sensitivity to that mix, we're really talking about both children as a pair. Oddly enough, while many of the qualities the children display seem to be missing in the parents, the children also seem to be a mirror image of their parents. Specifically, father and daughter are both in despair over what to do, while mother and son, well, they both seem to know what it'll take to do the job. Wow. As I said before, in terms of typology, these positive traits of the children may not necessarily be specific to any one function. Instead, they might be more specific to a coupling or pair of functions. And according to the Jungian model, feeling will always be coupled with either sensation or intuition. Really? Yeah. And if Gretel really is the feeling function, that would make Hansel either sensation or intuition. Mm. So just think about that interesting little speech the Grimms wrote for Hansel. Everything will be all right. I'll find a way to help us. What he's literally doing there is predicting the future. Seriously? Well, for my money, that corresponds more to intuition than any of the other four functions. Welcome to the new millennium. It's just as we predicted. Picture phones, space stations, moon. And uh, what do you know? We're going to find out that Hansel is indeed the intuitive function. Oh my God. See, this story is so much more powerful than a simple cautionary tale. It actually shows us what happens to our own creativity and creative impulses when the shit hits the fan, and we've chosen to ignore or ditch them in favor of survival. Not good. In other words, when we turn down option B. Ah! The Hero's Journey in favor of complying with what the culture expects from us, which is always and only option A. Do not try to run. Do not try to escape. Enter the trains in an orderly manner. Do not panic. You will be taken care of. Do not run. Do not panic. Do not resist. Yikes! And maybe the most valid point the story makes is that we can actually trust our creativity to know how to navigate option B. I know the way. Now, for sure, it takes the difficult work of attention and consciousness, sucking it up and raising our level of consciousness, paying attention, and holding on to something our culture wants us to get rid of. Our intuition and our feelings. Try to be brave now. In any case, Hansel and Gretel both show us that we can trust our creativity to know what to do, even without our conscious interference, because both of these children and the functions they represent may just be the driving force behind our own creativity. 
And that alone, my dear listeners, friends, and supporters, speaks volumes about the wisdom and hopefulness of fairy tales. Begin adventure. In our next episode, little Hansel is going to get up and tiptoe out the door. And before we can follow him out into the night, we're going to have to go low when others would go high. So get ready for a limbo party that even Michelle Obama would love. Any questions, please? So if you do have any questions, you can always go to the website and click on the Talk to Me link. You know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. Alrighty then. Thanks for listening. And ciao a tutti. I'm not so sure I like that. <laughs> that give, me, just... give me a German version. I can't. My French isn't that good. I'll do the French one again. Yeah, um... Give the American one a try again. Il était une fois un roi et une reine qui avaient mal fait leurs affaires. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> why is it funny? <laughs> That's why. Forget about it.